0: The following message is entitled, What's the Problem with Sin? It is part of 12 Stone Church's 30 Minute Theology series. Please enjoy Dr. Wayne Schmidt as he delivers this teaching. Well, Stone, I have been so eager to bring you this new kind of series idea called 30 Minute Theology. Because underneath the way we think and live is our theology. It's really foundational to life. And we thought it would just be an awesome idea if from time to time we took a theological subject and we taught it, when I mean, we got deep enough into it. See, I know what's going to happen. This this stuff is going to so change your life that you're going to start asking me to do more and more and more of these. And that's fine. We'll we'll look forward to doing these things. And occasionally, uh, I'll be teaching a 30-minute theology weekend. But from time to time, I'll be bringing in somebody in who's a bit more qualified than me. And that brings us to Wayne Schmidt. Wayne Schmidt is going to be teaching our first 30-minute theology. And he has been a lifetime friend. I pastored with him in Grand Rapids, Michigan at the Kentwood Community Church. In fact, he, that church, are the anchor church. They served as the parent church to 12 Stone, so we owe them huge. But that's not what qualifies them to teach today. What qualifies him to teach is he pastored for 30 years, wrestling down theological issues and then bringing them into the lives of, well, normal people like you. People have to live this out every day. Um, He has his earned bachelor's, master's, and doctorate. And so he's been chewing on theological issues behind the scenes for a long time. And then for nearly seven years, he's led Wesley Seminary. So helping other pastors navigate, understand, come to grips with theology and bringing it into life. And now he's the general superintendent of the Wesleyan denomination, helping lead the next movement of God among us. He's more than qualified, but he's our friend, a parent leader to this church, and he has graciously agreed to come and teach. So would you give a 12 stone welcome to Wayne Schmidt. Come on church, let's give it up. Wayne, love you my friend. Great brother, appreciate you here. Thank you, brother.
1: Well, it is awesome to be with you. Thank you for the opportunity. As Pastor Kevin mentioned, we go way back. In fact, we grew up in the same home church, and I visited that home church recently, and they handed me a picture I'd never seen. And this is the picture: Berkeley Hills Wesleyan Church. There I am in the back. And right here in the middle is your pastor with that distinguished afro. And I know when you look at me and you look at him, you're thinking, wow, they were cool even all those years ago. It's really quite incredible. And you'll notice he's also down on one knee. So you have this combination of cool and spiritual and so we have this history together and I thought when he called me and asked if I would be involved in this message I thought wow we were once cool and spiritual together now we get to do it again I get to speak at 12 stone church and he says yes I would like you to speak on theology and I went huh And he said, yes, we have this great idea, 30-minute theology. And I said, wow, this is different. How did it go the first time? And he said, well, you are the first time. And and I'm thinking in the back of my head, uh, guinea pig, you know, one and done. Uh, Blame the guy uh, that if it doesn't go well. And and, I said, oh, okay. And so theology, uh, first time. And then, where would you start? And one of the logical places to start is with the issue of sin. So today, I get to talk with you about theology and sin. And I'm excited to do that. I can tell you're excited to listen to it. Uh, But we're gonna dive in. And here's what I need you to do for me. I need you to help me by just staying with me The first five minutes or so, because that's going to be the heaviest content. I'm going to give you the basic theological statement that we hold to as a church. And uh, so I'm going to do some reading. We're going to do some diving in. And theological language by its nature is precise and it is dense, which means there's a word, probably a word we don't use in our everyday language. And that word precisely captures something that's been explained elsewhere in chapters of books, in books, in whole sections of the library. And so there's a lot of loaded words found in these statements meant to make every word count. So if you'll hang with me that first few minutes, then we're going to unpack what it looks like for us to kind of live it out to what the difference it makes in our lives. So here we go. Sin, original, willful, and involuntary, different kinds of sin. We believe that through the disobedience of Adam and Eve, sin entered the world and all creation has suffered its consequences. So I want to give you a little bit of a timeline of what's going on here. It all goes back, this sin thing, to Adam, who's created to live in a perfect world. You know, he lived in this gorgeous garden. They ran around naked all day. They had great food to eat. They had intimacy with each other, Adam and Eve. They had intimacy with God. And God said, it's all yours. There's just one thing you can't do. You can't eat from that tree. Well, Adam, not wanting to be told no, uh, said, ah, we're going to try that. Eve first, then Adam. And we have what we call Adamic sin, which is Adam and Ick. So Adam gets named for Wouldn't you like to be known throughout history as the guy who got it all going in terms of sin? And then all of the ick that follows as a result of Adam's sin. So let's go back to our statement here. The effects of sin, here's the ick, include disruption of a relationship between God and humanity, the vertical relationship, deterioration of the natural order of creation, so just kind of the whole world, and, and the exploitation of people by evil or misguided social systems. So it can be personal or it can be in terms of the social systems. The whole creation groans for redemption. Each person is born with a proclivity toward, a tendency toward sin, manifested in an inordinate orientation. I told you there'd be some good words along the way. Toward self. Me, I'm the center of the universe, and independence from God leading to deliberate acts of unrighteousness. The residual effects, back to the ick, of Adam and Eve's sin, disobedience, include a marred human nature. That's part of that word, original sin, from which arise involuntary shortcomings, faults, infirmities, imperfect judgments. So beyond the things that are willful sin, it just messes us up in a variety of ways. And these things should not be accounted the same as willful sin. However, as manifestations of the fallen nature of humanity, these shortcomings of God's holiness still necessitate the merits of the atonement, the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit, and the self-control of the believer. I told you we're going to pile into it for these first few minutes. So let's, let's unpack it just a second. So Adam gets it all started and as the world goes on, it experiences the impact of sin. And that impact of sin is, it's personal. In other words, people themselves have a bent as it's often written about, they have a bent towards sinning. They have a proclivity, as the word was used there. So personally, we're corrupted inside because of what has taken place. But it's not just personal, it's global, like it's the whole creation is experiencing this impact. And it's not just global, it messes up our whole world, but it's generational, So that the mess one generation makes has an impact on the next generation. The Bible talks about sins of the fathers carry on down to the third and fourth generation. And so while we may not be accountable for those sins, how many have been impacted by what previous generations have done? So this is a mess. And if I were to write one word to sum it all up, I would use that word, mess. And the only thing that's going to clean up this mess is the atonement of Jesus Christ. The sanctifying work. He brings us into a relationship with us, and he helps us then to grow in that relationship. Let's go back to our statement. Willful sin results, okay, this is distinguishing. Remember, original sin, then another category was willful sin. Willful sin results when a morally accountable person knows what they're doing, chooses to violate a known law of God, using the freedom of choice to please self rather than obey God. The consequences of willful sin include a loss of fellowship with God, a self-absorption with one's own interest rather than love and concern for others, a bondage... To the things that distort his divine image in us. A persistent inability to live righteously. And ultimately everlasting misery and separation from God. Wow. What consequences to this sin. So uh, we continue on in this timeline. And at some point we are born. And we get to make our contribution to sin. So uh, We'll call this Wayne sin. I you know, feel Adam's pain. I don't know if Wayne works for that, but uh, <laughs> this is like our own unique contribution that we make to the mess that's been going on. And so the statement ends, and it says this, that the atoning work of Christ is the only remedy... It's the only thing that works for sin, whether it's original, that bent, that proclivity, that tendency we have to sin, willful, or it's involuntary. So just as God did something through his atonement that made possible to right the wrongs of the whole world, he also did something personal. That's the day that you and I experience that we begin a relationship with him. Now, what do we do with sin now that we're in a relationship with him? What can we expect? What can we hope for in a relationship with him? Now, it'd be great if people agreed about this, but they do not. For instance, in the community where I served for a number of years, it was not uncommon for people to pray, Lord, forgive my many sins today in word, thought, and deed. So did you catch that? Well, I, I, I appreciated their humility and transparency. You had the sense they were thinking every day, I'm going to sin. Word, thought, and deed. On the other end of the spectrum, you have those who say, well, we can live so that we don't sin. We can live so temptation just kind of, we hardly feel it. Now, if you were to ask, where are we on that continuum? Sin every day, word, thought, indeed, deed, or live this kind of perfect life, we would tend to be on this side of the continuum, not perfect, but saying it is possible to live in victory in the face of sin. Now, how does that work? How do we begin as believers to really live a life that overcomes sin? Well, I want to take you now to the uh, renowned uh, theologian, Bob Newhart. Let's, Let's listen in. I have this fear of
0: being buried alive in a box has, has, has anyone ever ever tried to to bury you alive in a box? No I'm going to uh, say two words to you right now I, I want you to listen to them very very carefully then I want you to take them out of the office with you and incorporate them in, into your life. you ready? Yes Okay, you're there. Stop it! Stop it Don't don't do that. But what, what what else? I'm afraid to drive. Well stop it. <laughs> well, how, how are you gonna get around? Get in the car and drive you you kook. I don't like this therapy at all. You're just telling me to stop it And and you, and you don't you don't like that. No, I don't. All right, then let me, uh, let me uh, give you 10 words that I, I think will uh, clear everything up for you. Right here are the 10 words. Stop it or I'll bury you alive in a box.
1: <laughs> now, that's a bit funny, but the uh, reality is sometimes the church's response has been simply stop it. And that's all they give you. You come into a relationship with Christ, and now that you're a Christian, stop it. Well, what difference does it make that we have and belong to uh, Jesus Christ through a relationship with him? How would you complete this phrase that those who belong to Christ Jesus have? Well, Galatians chapter 5, where we're going to spend our time today, gives us the answer, the deep down difference that's made as a result of a relationship with God. And I want you to notice something as we dig in today. We're not talking about behavior modification, simply changing the way you act. We're not talking about image enhancement, so we clean up kind of nice. We're talking about total transformation. So it's not only the way we act, but who we are that it's changed. It's not only our outward image, but it's the image of God internally coming alive and showing itself through us. That's the total transformation. And so that unfolds with a pretty rigorous beginning. Those who belong to Jesus Christ, it feels kind of warm, belonging, and, and feels like something that's uh, cuddly and, and secure. But, but there's a real rigor to what we're going to read today. And in Galatians chapter 5, it begins by saying, in verse uh, 20, uh, 25, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the sinful nature with its passions and desires. So if we are going to experience victory in the face of sin, it will require something to die. Crucifixion. And the word that's used here, crucified, has with it the idea of an ongoing, continuous act. I'd love to tell you that you come into a relationship with Christ, you know sin's going to die, you pray about it, you put that thing to death, and it's done. But oftentimes, it starts to creep up again, it starts to grab hold of us, and once again, we have to put that to death. Now, in case you're not familiar with the possibilities of the things that need to die, earlier in the passage, he gives us a list. And here's the list, uh, a few verses uh, 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 earlier in this passage. The acts of the sinful nature are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery. So there's this sexual sin, this whole realm of lust. Uh, the idolatry and rich witchcraft; these uh, competing spiritual forces, uh, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, this anger that grabs hold of the selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and like. I warn you, as I did before, those who live like this don't inherit the kingdom of God. Now, I've got a theory about this. Okay, this is not theology; it's theory. I think most of us have a signature sin. We have an area where we have a spiritual Achilles heel. It tends to raise its ugly head in our life. For some people, it is in the world of lust and sexuality. For some people, it's anger. For some people, it's just selfishness that it results in envy and greed and other things. I know what mine is. It's insecurity. And I don't know why. I grew up in a loving home. I grew up with good parents. I grew up being affirmed. But boy, I have this... Achilles heel toward insecurity. And when I was first married to my wife, Jan, that showed up as jealousy. I couldn't believe someone like her could be exclusively devoted to someone like me in marriage. And the jealousy drove me crazy and drove her crazy. And then I get into ministry. I think I gotta prove myself. I gotta prove that I'm called. And if, I, if I'm really doing my job, I'll please everybody. And so this proving and pleasing drove me to an overcommitment to work and a neglective Jan, who I didn't feel very secure in our relationship anyway. So if she got anything, she got what was left over after all this proving and pleasing was done. And it almost train wrecked my walk with God, my ministry, and most important my relationship with Jan. Now, I know that tendency is there. That may not be yours at all. But I wonder if you know what your vulnerability is, your tendency is. Turn to the person next to you and share your signature sin. <laughs> no, no, I'm just kidding. You know, that, that's, yeah, that'll warm up a room, won't it? Uh, yeah, lot, wow, I never knew. Cool, yeah, what? Uh, so, something's going to have to die, and for most of us, that's an area that tends to be persistent in our lives. In fact, Jesus, when he talked about discipleship in Luke 9, 23, said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross... Daily crucifixion and follow me. Now, most of us don't say, yeah, sign me up for crucifixion. Chip Ingram talks about it this way. He says, every dream passes through the cross. Every dream takes you to where you let go of everything, everyone, every agenda and expectation. And then it is only as the Lord resurrects you in your dream That you can go on. We spend much of our time and energy trying to avoid that place. We want just enough of Jesus to make us happy, just enough to give us peace, just enough to make things go our way to fulfill our dreams and our agenda. Meanwhile, He wants to take us to the cross where selfish dreams, egos, plans for the great accomplishments have to die. The cross brings you to a place of total and absolute surrender of all that you have and all that you are. Those who belong to Jesus Christ have crucified their sinful nature. The problem with sin is this. Sin never satisfies our desires. It only intensifies our desires. When you feed it, the cravings only grow. Reminds me of another favorite theologian of mine, Tim Conway.
0: Lay's potato chips are so thin, so crisp, so light, no one can eat just one. You're kidding. I can Just one. So, so all you need is one.
1: More in there, but uh,
0: just... Um, could uh, hold one. Just, uh,
1: just had the one. And that's how it works with sin. So we must crucify, but it doesn't stop there. Those who belong to Jesus Christ have crucified the sinful nature, its passions and desires... And then he goes on, since we live by the Spirit. So it doesn't end with the crucifixion. Stop it. Kill it. It goes on to a resurrection. Since we live by the Spirit. Years ago, I was in a small group with a guy who was struggling with alcoholism. Had his whole life and he was in a season of victory in his life. And he said, I don't end up, want to end up being a dry drunk. And I said, what's a dry drunk? He says, it's someone who, even though they are not drinking, their whole life is about not drinking. That's their whole purpose. The goal of the Christian life is not sinning. No. The goal of the Christian of life is not just a matter of not sinning. We don't want dry disciples. The goal of the Christian life is who you are now becoming in Christ as his life lives in you and you experience his resurrection power. Here's the amazing thing God's spirit does for us by his power when we live in the spirit is he changes the default position of our lives. Before that, the default position of our life is to sin. After he begins to work in our lives slowly, as he He works in, we call this work sanctification, as he works in us, he changes that default position from sin to serve. And so we begin to find the compulsion to sin loses its grip and the, the urge to serve and to love exerts itself more strongly in our lives. You know, years ago there was a bumper sticker, I'm not perfect, I'm forgiven. But I don't think that bumper sticker reflects what God wants for us ultimately. Ultimately. The bumper sticker shouldn't say, I'm not perfect, I'm forgiven. It it should say, I'm not perfect, I'm free. He wants us to get to the place of freedom where we can serve him. You know, think about it. The goal is not just forgiveness. If you're married, the goal is not every day at the end of the day to say to your marriage partner, I blew it again, forgive me. And then the next day, I blew it again, forgive me. I blew it again, forgive me. That does not build a marriage. If you're parents and you neglect your kids or you don't dial into them or whatever and you just say, forgive me. And the next day, forgive me. And the next day, forgive me. That does not build a relationship with your kids. And just saying to God daily, forgive me when he wants us to live in freedom, and he not only wants it for us, he makes it possible through his power. Now, I wanna say this carefully, but I'm convinced of this. You should not settle for daily forgiveness when you can experience daily freedom. Because even though forgiveness makes it all possible, forgiveness is not all that's possible. Forgiveness to freedom. You know, the person that was in a role similar to mine earlier, I was talking to his son the other day. He has an office across the hall from me. And he described his dad's life. And his dad grew up in a family where uh, he called six men dad growing up. His mom had two divorces, and after her third divorce, uh, number three adopted him. But it was soon, and he was gone. And so as a young person, he began to follow in the footsteps of everyone around him. He stole, he drank, he fought, he swore, he lied. He was on track to be like the generations of thieves and robbers and addicts and abusers before him. He had 16 half-brothers, stepbrothers, stepsisters. You could call it a blended family, his son writes, but the blender had been turned on and then forgotten about. At 15 years of age, my father left home rather than move away with his mom to another town and to another marriage. And the Wesleyan pastor in his small town, their wife, took him in and introduced him to Jesus Christ. This guy's the first Christ follower ever in his family. He's the first one to ever go to college. He's the first one to become a minister He's one of very few who are not divorced. He's one of very few who are not addicted to alcohol. He's one of few kids uh, with kids whose kids are not addicted, divorced. And this is the one who led his mom, his stepdad, his grandparents, and other family members to Jesus. And he became the leader of our movement. His name is Jerry Pence. And his son, Corey, said, as I get ready to have my first child, my father's story has framed my own understanding and identity. It is not found in a surname. It's found in a relationship with Jesus. As I prepare for the arrival of my firstborn, I rejoice that my whole family's been made new. Wow. If you know your own pastor's story, I loved his parents growing up. They were my Aunt Pat and Uncle Jack. But wow. And I got to tell you, I don't tell you this to brag. My Achilles heels in insecurity. But it's been a long time since I've made a major decision of my life that has been prompted mostly by insecurity. Now I get to make decisions prompted overwhelmingly by God's spirit prompting in my life. Where does this power come from? I wish I could unpack it, but I'm going to move on. It's in Ephesians chapter 1. And I love this. It's a prayer. But he says, we have some incomparably great power. It's for those of us who believe and belong. And that power is like the working of his mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead. Listen, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is the power available to you and me every time we face temptation. Wow. The great thing about the resurrection is it is a a historical reality. The even greater thing about the resurrection is its present availability that we can live in that power today. Those who belong to Jesus Christ, crucifixion, resurrection. But it doesn't stop there. Let us keep in step with the Spirit. There's this compulsion that's still one of my Achilles heels that I just got to make things rhyme and match. So, synchronization. Keep in step with the Spirit. If you're led by the Spirit, you don't need to stop it. You don't need the rules because they never work anyway. The rules are only serving a desire to obey God. You can be led by the Spirit. Synchronization. Synchronization. I mean any of you wonder about why synchronization, you know, why synchronized swimming is an olympic sport. Everybody anybody else what is so hard about that? <laughs> or how any of you have this experience your phone syncing with your computer and and when it doesn't you become paranoid about whether things have transferred. Keep in step with the spirit Now, we all have different shoes that we wear. Our steps don't look the same. And we all have different kind of terrain that we walk. You know, some of us are having a kind of red carpet life and we have more money than we need, we have more popularity than we need, we have more power than we need. Let me tell you, there's a set of temptations that comes with that. Sin enters that. And others, wow, it's rigorous, it's tough. And there are challenges that come with that as well. This is a picture of me walking with my granddaughter. What stands out to you about that? Well, you might think, those legs, wow. (laughs) But I love walking with my granddaughter. We've got a problem. Our legs aren't the same length. So sometimes I have to slow down, which is hard for her pops to do, and she walks at a normal speed. And sometimes I walk at my normal speed, and she has to step up. She has, she's taking two to my one. And sometimes, you know what happens lift her up on my shoulders. I do the walking, but we're still together. We serve a God with long legs. And sometimes, by his grace, he just slows down. Oh, he's not quite catching up. I'll just walk a little slower. give a little more time for her to catch on. Other times he says, come on, come on, pick it up. And other times, wow, onto his shoulders. So you see what's going on in this passage? You see how he changes us? He helps us to understand something that needs to die, but he doesn't want us to just live with the stop it. He moves us on to experience his resurrection power so that we can experience his grace before we sin, not just after we sin. The power in the face of temptation, and we keep in step with his spirit. Now, if it had been me, I would have ended right there. I think that's a real high note for him to end on. But after he gives this amazing verse, since we live by the spirit, let us keep in step with the spirit. He adds, let us not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. Oh, come on. Anybody notice it's easier to love God than other people? It seems like he's saying, and the way you know this is working is look at the relationships around you. That's why Jesus when he's asked what's the greatest command, he said, oh, love God, heart, soul, mind, and strength. But I got to throw this in there. I know he said only one, but love your neighbor as yourself. It's not only the change that occurs in our relationship with God, but each other. So let me ask you today a couple simple questions, maybe reflection and action. Any areas where you're out of step. You got some Lay's potato chip action going on. You've got some passions and desires that can trip you. Now some of us who've grown up are conditioned that this is the only thing that we hear from God is when he convicts us and he says no. And it's hard for us to hear the areas where we're in step. Where am I experiencing God's guidance and energy? And I'm following His lead. Where do I feel His smile in my life? His well done. Let me pray with you about that. Lord, for each of us, speak to us, Lord, about any area where it needs to die. And we need to experience your power so we can really live and really walk with you. And God, I pray as well, in those areas where we're in step, where we're obedient, may we rejoice in your smile upon us, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.